What would you say the most famous parable that Jesus tells is? What would you go for? Most famous parable that Jesus tells. What's the first one that comes to mind? Okay, that's good. That's worked. Phew. Okay, next one. What is the parable of the Good Samaritan all about? What is it about? We know it, don't we? How many of us have sat through school assemblies with it? Yeah. Lots of us would have been through Sunday school. Uh, Might have sat through church services about the Good Samaritan. I, I guess we know it. If you're sitting there going, I have no idea what that story is. Think about how we use the phrase, they were a good Samaritan. Or think about what the Samaritans, you know, the people uh, you can phone up, the wonderful organizer you can phone up when when things are just terrible uh, and there's somebody on the end of the phone line for you. Think about how that's used. Uh, And just in maybe the people you're sitting with, uh, have a little think. What is the parable of the good Samaritan all about? And now here's something you won't hear me say often from the front. Keep your Bibles closed. No sneaky peeky. Okay, what is the parable of the Good Samaritan all about? Go. Okay, I'm going to bring us back together. Um, At risk of you doing this sermon for me, which, to be honest, today would be great, actually, actually. Um, what is the parable of the Good Samaritan all about? Any groups want to just share some of the things they were thinking about, uh, very simply? No, of course you don't. Love your neighbor. Thank you. There's the question, who is my neighbor? Thank you. Any other thoughts? What is the parable of the Good Samaritan all about? Helping others. Thank you. Yeah. Loving your enemies. Yeah, 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 the relationship between, the, uh, between Israel and Samaritans, yeah. Yeah, anything else in your conversations that jumped out? Whoa, too keen there. Maggie, go for it. What? You've forgotten your point, that's fine. It's fine. Somebody shout at something from over here. Okay, so not always the expected person who helps. So, so kind of, yeah, lots of threads to draw and lots of things uh, uh, to think about. And if, I, if I'm honest, I, th- I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is one which, because we hear it in assembly, because we hear it Sunday school, because it's entered our kind of everyday language, it's a story I think we can easily think we know what it's all about. That we've, we've got hold of the story. No, it's, it's about being a good neighbor. It's about showing mercy. It's about kindness, maybe from unexpected places. Uh, and we think we've got hold of it, and we've got it worked out. Tell you what, spending some time this week in this parable has told me that this is a parable that gets hold of us. That shows us that we've not got it worked out, and that we are works in progress. Uh, so I think the best thing we can do now is to hear the parable read uh, in its context. So it's Luke chapter 10. Um, and Julie, you're not that tall, I don't think, so I'll put that down a little bit. You're going to read uh, from Luke 10, starting at verse 25 for us. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So <clears throat> he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. 
They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, Well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Thank you very much, Julie. I want you to imagine that um, you went up to the refreshments area. You, you were uh, served with a smile by Snug, who were doing refreshments this evening. Thank you very much. Uh, and you, you're really looking forward to your, oh, I've chosen well, divinely, two divinely chocolatey cookies. You open your packet, and inside you pull out, and it's not just a broken biscuit, it's a bit of a biscuit. And you look in the rest of the packet, and there's, there's nothing else there. What are you feeling? Cheated, disappointed. I mean, a bit of biscuit. I've learned not to eat things in the sermon, because then I have a mouthful, so I won't. Still good, though. Still nice chocolate biscuit, but you kind of you know you're missing out. You know, you know, it's still good, but you're you're missing out. Now, uh, imagine you go around to a friend's house, and they crack out a box of chocolates. I don't mean just like one of the tubs, you know, selection box tubs. I mean a proper box of chocolates. You know, where they're they're posh and they're individ- in their little individual holders. I don't know what you would go for, what your choice of uh, posh box of chocolates would be. Uh, they go, they get, they get out and they say, I had a few earlier. But would you like one? Yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. And, uh, and you open the box, and, and before you is a row of half-eaten chocolates. Your friend has decided that it's a really good idea to get the most variety with the least calories to eat half and put it back and then eat another half. Great. You're faced with these half-eaten chocolates. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? Yeah, well, you're a bit, bit unnerved. Uh, pretty put off. You might be questioning your choice of friends. Uh, you might be, I'm, I've given up chocolate for Lent. But you know what? You and I both know that half-eaten chocolate still tastes good. Unless it's Turkish delight. Blah. Yeah, no, no, that's, that doesn't count. But you know there's something missing. And it doesn't feel right at all. And so much of what we hear about the parable of the Good Samaritan, whether it's in assemblies or Sunday school, whether it's in church, whether it's how we use um, the kind of phrase in our, in our language leaves us with half a biscuit. It leaves us with a half-eaten chocolate. Only, often we don't realize it. You see, to show mercy, to, to show help to anyone in need, whoever they are, is right, isn't it? It's absolutely bob on. I mean, it was a few months since we were there, but back in Luke uh, chapter 6, if, if you've got a Bible open, you can, you can flip back. Luke chapter 6, back about five pages or so, 
Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 31 reads like this. It's on page 1034. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. Someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. A parable of the Good Samaritan, about loving our neighbor, whoever they are. Maybe a love that comes from unexpected places. Well, to love people isn't that what Christians are supposed to do? To do to others as they would have done to them. Even if it's the people you like the least. To love people no matter who they are, no matter what we think of them, no matter what they think of themselves or think of us, no matter how we define them, no matter how they define themselves or other people define them. To really love people they're so made in the image of God. Isn't that to mark God's people? Isn't that to mark us? Absolutely. Just look what Jesus asked the expert of the law at the end of our passage. Um, page 1042, verses 36 and 37. It says to the expert in the law, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one he had mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Isn't that what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about? Well, well yes. But I want to suggest it's half the biscuit. It's half the chocolate. It's good. But it's not the whole thing. It's not the whole thing. You see, Jesus tells this story in a conversation he's having, in a real event, a real conversation with an expert in the law. We're, we're, we're told they must have all been sitting down. I don't know if there was a crowd. There probably was a crowd. Jesus tended to draw a crowd. And we're told, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up. Can you imagine uh, tonight, Tim just suddenly stands up. What would we all do? All eyes would go onto Tim. Everyone might go, ooh, what's happening? It's that kind of moment. It's that kind of moment. We have this expert in the law. Don't think kind of solicitor or lawyer. Think kind of Old Testament theologian. Someone who, who really got the Old Testament law, what we would kind of call the first five books in our Bibles. He stands up and we're told to test Jesus. See, Jesus' impact, as we've traveled through Luke so far, has grown. Jesus, what Jesus was teaching was ringing true to people. The miracles Jesus did gave people a glimpse of a life they wanted to be part of. He was going out with an invitation to people to follow him, and they were taking him up on it. Last week, we heard how 72 of his followers were sent out to heal those who were ill. To proclaim that the kingdom of God had come near. And we're told this expert in the law wanted to test Jesus. So he's either aiming to try and catch Jesus out, or at least show him up. Uh, 
so often Jesus, doesn't he? Whenever we read about him, he, he sees into people's hearts. He knows their motives. He knows our motives today. And he'll have seen the expert in the law's motives. He kind of knows that any answer he's going to give, this expert in the law will probably jump on and twist or make it sound wrong. But neither is Jesus out to make a fool of this man or to embarrass him. So we ask him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the expert comes back with that brilliant answer. Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He plucks out two particular verses, one from uh, Deuteronomy 6, one from Leviticus 19, and, and puts them together. It's a stunning answer. It's the same answer Jesus gives when a, a Pharisee and a, a, another expert in the law asks him, what is the greatest commandment? It's, it's what Jesus says. So whether the expert in the law had heard Jesus give that answer and was like, oh, that's the right answer, or more likely, actually, he knew it. He knew that you know, when you as I am reading through some of the early books of the Bible, I'm in Numbers at the moment, and, and you're in that unfamiliar territory and kind of trying to make sense of some of these laws to realize that they, you know, the heart of them is love for God, love for others. The Old Testament law, particularly for the nation of Israel in a particular place at a particular time. And whilst lots of what we read might not be directly applicable to us, it reveals what it means to love God and to love others. Jesus says to the expert, do this and you will live. But what happens next kind of shows that the expert of the law has the right answer, but he hasn't really got it yet. He's not really able to love God and love others because he himself potentially has not experienced love from God. Because without the experience of God's love, we struggle. We struggle to truly love God, to truly love others. We might be able to glimpse it, but it's hard to, to live it out. Because if the call is to love God with all you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself, how do you know when you've done enough? How do you know you've done enough? And it seems to me that's what's going through this expert in the law's mind. How do you, how do you measure it? So verse 29. The expert in the law wanted to justify himself. And so we asked Jesus that famous question, and who is my neighbor? The expert is, is asking so that he can work out who counts as his neighbor and therefore who doesn't count as his neighbor. Who is it that I have to love? Who don't I have to love? What's the minimum effort I need to put in? Tell me, Jesus, and you know what? I will probably be able to show you that I'm living it out. I'm doing okay, and actually I don't really need you. Again, Jesus isn't out to make a fool of him. Isn't out to embarrass him, but he does land him in it. He tells this story that says it's not about minimum effort. The Christian life is not about minimum effort. It is about maximum mercy. 
He turns this expert of the law's question all around. And it, it lands in the story that we know so well. There was a man. And he was going uh, down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was literally a downward journey. It was a steep road, 17 miles long, rocky and dangerous. I, I suspect the others listening into this story would kind of guess what was going to happen next. They knew the road. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Horrible experience. Not only that, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, they leave him on the floor, half dead. There's hope though, isn't there? Because there are footsteps approaching. We're told, verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the road. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Good news. When he sees the man, we know the story. He crossed over, passed by on the other side. But don't worry, the Levite's coming. But perhaps he's seen what the priest has done and gone, oh, that's what I need to do. Does exactly the same. Now, I guess we could come up with all kinds of excuses. If this guy has been beaten up, if they stop, are they not at risk? Uh, look, if you've heard this story before, often you kind of hear that you know, for, the, for the priest and the Levite involved in the uh, religious ceremonies uh, of the people of God, to touch a body that they think is dead would make them unclean and therefore they wouldn't be able to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. They wouldn't be able to do their job. They wouldn't be able to represent God's people and help them in their worship. Except the implication of these verses is that they weren't going to Jerusalem. They were going the same way as the man from Jerusalem to Jericho. They were going home. And maybe their excuses are much closer to home. I just want to get home. I've had a big day at work. It's too risky. What if it's a trap? Well, my parents telling me they were in, in Barcelona and, uh, and they were kind of, my dad had his wallet nicked because they th somebody threw some, some kind of horrible stuff down his trousers and somebody came to help him and to clean it all off. And in doing so, whipped his wallet out. Maybe they're feeling like that. We, we, it's maybe how we would feel. They're not doing anything to hurt anyone, are they? But you notice Jesus doesn't share any excuses. He just, very matter of fact, says what they did. They avoided the man in desperate need. Verse 33. What's coming to happen next? The expert of the law, I suspect. Maybe he's writing the story. Ah, of course it's the, of course it's the vicar and the curate, the clergy. Of course they're, I mean, they're so hypocritical. I can't even say the word. Hypocritical. What about a good, ordinary member of God's people? It's not who Jesus reaches for. He goes for the Samaritan. Oh, for it's a good Samaritan, isn't it? We, we kind of picture a, a Mother Teresa kind of figure, don't we? For the expert in the law, it would be the equivalent of the man lying half dead on the road being a Ukrainian citizen. And the person who's come to help him being an, invaded, an invading Russian soldier. That's the kind of level of tension going on. But notice the Samaritan is not working on the principle of minimum effort, but maximum mercy. Look, he sees what's going on. Uh, we're told, uh, aren't we? Verse 33. He saw him. He took pity on him. Uh, pity, it's a stronger word. He is moved inside. He's gut-wrenched at what he sees. And he acts because of it. He uses what he has. He bandages the man. Maybe he rips up his clothing to do it. 
He, he, he uses what he has, his oil, his wine. He gives his attention. He gives his time. He, he goes off his roots. He, he involves another. He, he risks his reputation. Can you imagine a Samaritan turning up at the inn in the nation of Israel amongst God's people and knocking on the door? What kind of reception is he going to get? He risks his reputation. He covers the cost. And then Jesus turns around to the expert of the law and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now Lizzie, when you do godly play at school, and I know this because you told me this on Monday, you have a question about Bible stories and often stories Jesus tells. What's the question? I wonder where you are in this story. And it's almost as if Jesus asking that question, he is asking the expert in the law, where, where are you in this story? He's probably written off being the, the priest and the Levite because of how they responded. He's very unlikely to choose the Samaritan's shoes to fill. In asking this question, I think Jesus is putting him as the man in the road, half dead. He's saying, who has been a neighbor to you? Who has shown you mercy? And as we read this story, I wonder if that's the question that we're being asked. Who has shown us mercy? A surprising person. Someone who's come from far away. Someone who has seen our mess and been moved in their gut about it. One who serves us. One who goes away and then returns and ensures the cost is met. See, before this is a story about going off and being merciful, it's first of all an invitation to experience the love of God, the mercy of God that comes through Jesus Christ. He's the one who restores us. He's the one who picks us up. But there is a second twist on the question, isn't there? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who can you be a neighbor to? But notice you can only truly live out a life of maximum mercy when you're not focused on what is my minimum effort I need to put in. It's when you know the maximum mercy that comes from God. Which is why when we look, you know, last week, what were we told? Rejoice. What is the one thing to rejoice in? Not that the 70s sent out saw amazing things and God working in amazing ways. He just said, no, rejoice. Your name is written in heaven. It's why next week we land the story of Martha and Mary. Luke has not just lobbed this story and oh, and something else happened. He wants us to see that a life of mercy flows out of experiencing mercy first. Who has been a neighbor to you? He's the one who's shown you mercy. Who can you be a neighbor to?
Notice the expert of the law can't even say the word Samaritan in his answer, can he? But he draws attention that it's all about mercy. You see, this is a story we think we've got hold of, and then it gets hold of us. You see, it's a bit like having heart, you know, if we just land with go and be merciful, we've got half the biscuit, we've got half the chocolate. It's a bit like, I don't know, some of you, any of you learn at the back learning to drive or about to learn to drive? There's a few of you, yeah? Imagine I bought you a car, it's outside. And you go outside, you've got the back half of a car. <laughs> and I'm afraid it's not a really fancy car, so it hasn't got the engine in the back either. It's just half, the back half of the car. Now, those of you who have a car, the back half of your car is really good, isn't it? When it is attached to the front half of the car. Because on most cars, not really fancy cars, you know, cars like mine, which are a bit beaten up and scratched and, and full of crumbs, uh, you know, useful for moving small people to places, the engine's at the front and the steering's at the front. If we are going to live lives of mercy, the power to do that, the direction to do that comes from the mercy we have received first. We're going to take a moment now. In, in light of the mercy that God shows us in Jesus, to spend a time, maybe a few moments, thinking about a particular issue, a live issue, it's kind of been raised by what's going on in Ukraine, of how we can show mercy. There is so much need in our world, and sometimes we get overwhelmed. How can I meet it all? Well, sometimes we need to remember that we have a merciful God. We cry out to him, first of all, Lord, have mercy. And then we do what we can with the opportunities that we have and the situations we're in and the resources that we have.